Welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host. And as always, I am happy to be here and to be within earshot of those listening and perhaps watching this show on Facebook Live. Look, this, this show is broadcast on several Pacifica stations. And if you are listening to this program on your local Pacifica station, I hope that you will support that station and call their pledge lines, call their donation lines, go on their websites and Click their donate button and support those stations. But even if you're catching this as a podcast or perhaps you're watching this on, on uh, Facebook Live, I still encourage you to support the radio stations that carry this, uh, this program. It's important that we have um, airtime and space within these broadcast grids, especially in the, in the in, look, we're in two major markets. We're in New York on WBAI and in Washington on WPFW, and I can't express how important those markets are to the messages that, that I'm trying to get out there. We deal, as a, as a Haudenosaunee who lives in Seneca territory, we have a lot of um, tough uh, interactions with New York State. So the powers of New York State are pretty much um, are centered in the New York City market, and uh, they control much of the uh, of state policy and politics. So it's uh, it's significant. Even though New York City isn't the capital, um, it is where the political powers lie. Uh, and of course, uh, Washington D.C. is where a lot of federal policy uh, is uh, is addressed, uh, oftentimes badly. And it's what I talk about on this program. It's what I address on this show. And I'm going to address a little bit of that today. Look, I've talked plenty about mascots and statewide ban, and I've talked about um, the, the gaming struggles at the Seneca Nation in particular, but all native gaming sites have gone through with, uh, with New York State and, and the racism that lies regardless of party within the executive branch and the le legislatures of New York State. Um, but I also try to address the... Um, uh, some of the federal issues. And oftentimes we get ourselves in these battles um, over control of our lives. Uh, and those battles might be with the state or the federal government, or the fight may be between the state and the federal government. We saw that in the, uh, in the Indian Child Welfare Act law <laughs> and on, in the challenge that was recently adjudicated at the Supreme Court and, and again, let me repeat that the Indian Child Welfare Act is, was problematic all by itself because it still failed to recognize our own authority uh, and right to determine the placement of our children uh, as a federal law. All the Indian Child Welfare Act did was place guardrails on the, the practice that states have had for, for many years on, 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 native, on children in general, but including Native children. So... 
the Indian Child Welfare Act said to the states, to the county Indian or, uh, Child Protective Services, that you must place a priority on putting Native children in Native homes. Now, it still didn't incorporate our involvement. This was a fight between whether the federal government had the power to dictate to the state governments on where, when and where Native children should be removed and, and placed, uh, which to me is, is problematic because it's still, we are still left in the situation where either the federal government is claiming this ultimate authority over the affairs of our lives or the state government is. And in no situation is that authority being acknowledged to rest with us as Native people. And of course, it violates... Er, it violates morality. It violates any uh, sense of, of justice um, or, or, or ethics. It violates the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And, um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about, about that document and, and how the United States still fails to meet what this document calls itself is the minimum standard for survival and dignity of Native peoples. And the, and the United States, New York State, all of it they can't meet the minimum standards. And we're going to talk about that a little bit because part of what ICWA, the claim of ICWA, was that it, that it put a nail in the coffin of both residential schools and the foster care adoption systems uh, of the United States. In many ways, the federal law um, almost tries to suggest that, that the states were the bad guys. You know, the federal government doesn't accept any responsibility for what it had done in over a hundred years of residential slash boarding schools where native children were ripped from their homes and subjected to these essentially concentration camps, these prisons where assimilation was the objective. And, and I'm gonna talk about a little bit about the goals of these schools, but it was the federal government who funded, primarily funded these, these schools and the federal government had this really ugly relationship with both the churches that, that administered and ran these schools and the states and their child um, protective services. And, and these schools were oftentimes used almost as orphanages for the state to take children out of these schools and place them uh, in the custody of white families. So the schools not only removed children from our families and placed them in these, un, uh, you know, terrible uh, institutions, but they also served as a platform for taking those children and, play, and permanently, permanently placing them with white families. And of course, the states were doing so with, through their normal state and county uh, child protective services and foster care systems and that kind of stuff. So the claim is that ICWA ended that. Well, it didn't really. Um, and if you're only going to say, okay, we passed this law to, to pull one stick out of your eye and we're going to leave the other one in there. The other one being, yes, we still have ultimate authority over your, over your lives. Then ICWA itself is problematic. And the challenge was based on a couple of arguments by a family called the Brackeens. And, that, and part of that challenge was whether the federal government had the authority to strip the states of their, their power to... Um, uh, to regulate where children are removed and, and placed uh, you know, in, in family households that, uh, that, that may be problematic. So it was a state's right versus federal government authority 
uh, case in the first instance, in the first part of that argument, and frankly, the only part of the argument that the Supreme Court really addressed. The other one whether, was whether we are really even a distinct people, or rather just a race of Americans. That's what the Brackeen family was trying to claim. They were trying to make an equal protections argument, and that discrimination was, uh, was afoot in, in the Indian Child Welfare Act, because it discriminated against white families and their right to have and to take and to own and, and receive Native children. They also tried to argue that, that it was racial discrimination against, um, against Native children for depriving them of the, you know, of the luxuries that a white family could offer them. So it became a little bit of a dollars and cents thing. One of the, the Supreme Court justice, justices, Brett Kavanaugh, really tried to make the whole argument just about race. But in the end, the Supreme Court never even heard or addressed the equal protections argument which to me was a bit more of a concern. I didn't care if ICWA went away. I honestly, I didn't. I think the, the, the law was flawed. But I was concerned about the Supreme Court establishing some sort of codification of, uh, of a legal fact that, they were, that we were no longer distinct, autonomous. Everything that the UN Declaration of Indigenous Peoples attempts to either restore or assert as the minimum standard for which, for how indigenous people should be treated, this argument that the Brackeens were making was going to undermine that and reduce us just to a race, just to a race of Americans, albeit a oppressed and a minority and uh, and you know a an inferior race, which is what the argument was, and and that argument was being being made because of um, religion spirituality, um, you know, poverty, and, and let's be clear, the poverty that most Native people experience is policy-driven. It is caused by the federal government and the state governments. I mean, we weren't a people living in poverty when white people showed up. If all, if all they saw were a bunch of starving, uh, impoverished people, I don't think we would have seen the wave of white folks showing up here. But clearly they saw uh, affluence that they wanted. And not just in the land. They saw it in the people, and they saw it in, uh, in our culture. Even as they tried to claim that it was primitive and uncivilized and savage, heathenistic, paganistic, all of that stuff. But let me, uh, I, because I've read this so many times, I almost should be able to recite it by now. But this is, again, the, um, the UN Declaration on the, on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Um, just so you, you see, this is the actual UN document. And the third affirmation of this document addresses doctrines, policies, and practices. So let me, let, me, let me read this. It's affirming that all doctrines, policies, and practices based on or advocating superiority of peoples or individuals on the basis of national origin or racial, religious, ethnic, or cultural differences are racist, scientifically false, legally invalid, morally condemnable, and socially unjust. Now, I've oftentimes cited this as, a, as, as an official UN response to the doctrine of Christian discovery. But, and it is. But it's also, again, doctrines, policies, and practices. This is condemning this notion of the plenary powers doctrine that the United States claims that Congress has over Native people. I mean, look, 
you can't assert power over over a people, a distinct autonomous people, without first suggesting that we were inferior enough to have that authority uh, imposed upon us. So the mere existence of the plenary powers doctrine is a violation of, of, the, of one of the first affirmations of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But it doesn't stop there. Residential schools, that's a, that's a policy and a practice. That No, I get, I get it. Residential schools pretty much have come to an end. They haven't completely, but they pretty much. And this document doesn't come into existence until, I think, 2007. But to be clear, this document, this Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, condemns even past practices. And in fact, many of the articles of this document are about addressing the injustices of the past. And in fact, redress, seeking redress. Article after article after article talks about Native people, Indigenous people, having the right to redress for, um, for having our children removed from us. For assimilation, forced assimilation, and and seeking, you know, some sort of uh, you know compensation or, or or redress for those crimes. Now, and that gets to what I what I'm kind of entitling this this program. I call it truth and restoration. I know I've talked about it before, but I got to do it again, and I'm going to talk about this many times um, in the future because. The United States is only now beginning to be held accountable and, and is only now beginning to reckon with the crime of genocide that these residential schools slash boarding schools have represented. And they existed for over 100 years, probably close to 200 years in, all, in reality. I mean, they, they passed a law back in the early 1800s called the Civilization Act, where Congress began to fund uh, mostly church missionaries who were being charged with scooping up Native children and converting them into Christians and getting rid of any semblance of Native identity. That was the goal. And, and look, we got to ask that question. What, what, again, what were the goals of these residential schools? Was it to torture children? No, it was, that wasn't the goal. I mean, they did that. Was it to kill children? No, it wasn't really the goal to kill at least not from an individual child standpoint, or to punish individual children, the reason that children were killed and punished and tortured was because they were trying to eliminate us through our children by eliminating our cultural identity. And look, if children died along the way, well, that, that solves part of the problem. I mean, it's part of the reason that residential schools are the most clear example of genocide, because they represent all five of the criteria that each individual um, act would represent genocide by itself, but it's about physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, the the killing of native children, the the deprivation of uh, that that native children went through, the um, the removing of our children from uh, from families, the. Uh, sterilization of uh, of our of our girls or of our young girls, so they would not be able to reproduce, and just the general creating of conditions with the intent to end our existence as a distinct autonomous people. I mean, those are the definitions of genocide, and those schools did all of that. So when we talk today 
about things like truth and reconciliation. That's the, that's the term that, that Canada used. And in fact, some states had their, these truth and reconciliation commissions to address more, more to address foster care and adoption systems that were stripping children away, taking children out of native households and, and having them being raised by white people. That's what Maine's Truth and Reconciliation Commission was about. But the problem with this idea of truth and reconciliation, reconciliation makes it sound like you had this great relationship, it went bad, and then you reconciled. You came back to fix that relationship and restore the relationship. The problem is we never had that relationship. We never had a relationship of, of equity and respect and acknowledgement. I mean, even when words like sovereignty were used, they were always used in the context that, it, that, it, that it, if it existed at all, that it no longer existed today. That's what the, the Supreme Court has said over and over and over again. And in every step along the way, they, they had the most racist comments they could offer about paganistic people, uh, uncivilized, savage, um, heathens, all of these derogatory terms that judges, legislators, presidents, people from academia, lawyers, this is, this is how Native people have always been held and continue to be held. Let me tell you something else that is, um, uh, that is a violation of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. That's the so-called trust responsibility. In kind of an offhand comment in one of the, the, the trilogy of cases that, that Justice, Chief Justice John Marshall heard relating to Native people, not that we were necessarily in the case, but it, but it was related to Native people, but his trilogy of cases was this idea that Native people were like wards of the state. That it was like a, like a custodian-guardian, you know, relationship. So this notion that we were like domestic-dependent nations or like wards of the state, this wasn't even part of his ruling in, in the case that he cites this. It's what they call legal dicta, just kind of superfluous language that really gives an indication on the perspective and the, the view held by the justice writing these opinions. So when he uses this expression, this legal dicta becomes the policy. It, this, these words become truth, even if they weren't truth. So to, to make the analogy that we were like wards of the state resonated throughout the United States. So then they, in fact, treat us as, as wards of the United States. Now, the problem is, when you talk about this ward custodian or this trust relationship, there's standards for what, what trusteeship should look like. The problem is what would normally be the standards for trusteeship, which means the, the priority has to be towards the ward, <laughs> you know, towards the, the people whose trust is now the responsibility of the United States. But when it comes to Native people, or, or, or in any trustee situation, let, let me back that up. So nor, in normal trusteeship kind of law, the trustee has to place as the highest priority the benefit, the, 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 the welfare, and the best intentions of their, their wards. But 
in native cases, so this notion of, of the trust responsibility the federal government has towards native, it's not the same standard. It's a much lower standard. In fact, national interest, the interest of the republic, is a higher standard than the, than the best interest of, of, of native people who are being regarded as these wards of the state. So it even turns that on its head. So this notion that they're going to base taking our land and asserting jurisdiction over us, convert, uh, treating discovery the same as conquest, that's born out of the doctrine of Christian discovery. I mean, every bit of it violates the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And I realize, again, that this is a, a rather recent document, 2007. And much of these policies begin way before that. The problem is they continue. They continue to this day. We have judges who are building their arguments based on past precedents, precedents today, based on something from the 1800s. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, again, the, the liberal dollar, darling of the Supreme Court, cited the doctrine of Christian discovery in a case against the Oneidas. She was wrong in citing it. She was also wrong in the other legal principles that she, that, you know, that she cited. But nobody's ever held account. And there's no foundation in the U.S. Constitution for any of this stuff. This, the idea of treating us as wards of the state, there's nothing in the law that says, there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that, in fact, we're not even a part of the U.S. Constitution. Again, the apportionment clause of the U.S. Constitution says don't count Indians. You, you don't include them for tax apportionment or for congressional representation. They're not a part of us. And in fact, the only other two places we're mentioned in the Constitution, again, we're, we're, we're set there right beside foreign nations and Indian tribes. Now, they couldn't call us foreign nations because we were here. <laughs> they were the foreigners on this land, not us. So they had to distinguish Indian tribes from foreign nations, but they're used within the same context. Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce in and amongst for, or with foreign nations uh, among several states and with Indian tribes. Well, that's not putting power of Congress over Native people. It doesn't say of Indian tribes. It says with Indian tribes. It says the President of the United States has the authority to negotiate treaties with foreign nations and with Indian tribes. So even in those instances in the U.S. Constitution where they mention foreign nations, they have to put Indian tribes or, or our nations right beside them. They have to distinguish the difference because we are not by, you know, geographically, we're not foreign nations. But nor are we domestic dependent nations. We, we have to be nations, in some cases, sharing the same land, but oftentimes our lands were very distinct from the, from the land that the United States was claiming. So the question, again, gets back to what was the purpose of these residential schools? I mean, was, it, was it really just to brutalize children? No, that wasn't the goal. That was the means to accomplish a goal. The goal was to eliminate our distinction, to end who we are as a people, to commit genocide. That's what the goal of, of residential schools were. They, I mean, they don't cite it because well, that would be ridiculous. But if you look at what happened in those schools and what the intent was, because in order for genocide, for, in order for 
uh, an atrocity to be considered a genocide. There has to be intent. So you have to go back to what is the intent? Well, the intent was to, to eliminate us as a distinct people, which is the definition of genocide. So that's what these schools were. So if today we're going to look at the truth and we're going to, I, mean, I think there's even a, a bill going through Congress that, uh, that calls, call it truth and healing. Like the problem is that we have these open festering wounds that need to be healed. Well, okay, I would argue that yes, there's intergenerational trauma that has not been properly addressed. But healing us as individuals isn't going to really properly address it. It, it, it certainly doesn't meet the standard uh, and, uh, in, according to international law for, for legal redress. In order to, to have redress, we have to be involved in the process. So again, let's get back to what the intent was. The intent was to take our children away from our, our households and break that bond between our culture and our ancestry and the children of, the, of that time. And, and that time is broad. I mean, it literally was for, for over 100 years. Uh, residential schools became a big part of American policy in the mid to late 1800s. And they would exist, arguably, until ICWA was passed, the Indian Child Welfare Act in 1978 or whatever, in the, in the 1970s. So for over 100 years, the most significant policy towards Native people was taking our children, placing them in either in these residential schools or just taking them out of households, allowing states to, to grab up our children, put them into foster care, and adopt them out to white people. And it wasn't, this isn't like An Angelina Jolie and Madonna adoption. This isn't like rich white people who say, I'd really love to have a beautiful Indian baby. Oh, there was some of that. Much of it was, we, need, we, we, we want a brown face that we can charge with, uh, you know, with taking care of us. We can, we can make them be our slaves, our servants. Because that's what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Maine did. They, they addressed the atrocities involved in placing Native children in these white homes and what those, these Native children really experienced there. So this wasn't just taking poor Native children and putting them in affluent uh, white households. No, there was some of that, but that wasn't the bulk of what the issue was. And certainly the idea of taking Native children and putting them in residential schools wasn't about educating and, pro and promoting some intellectual expansion of our, of our children, you know, eliminating the savagery and the uncivilized nature of Native children and bring, bringing them up to a level of sophistication. No, it wasn't that. Those children didn't learn a trade other than how to serve white people, you know, like migrant farm workers, or maybe to, to, you know, to march so you can be enlisted in the armed services, or the women were taught how to be maids or servants. That's, there was no trades offered. I won't say no. I mean, there, there probably was an example or two. I mean, if people think about Jim Thorpe uh, becoming, you know, this, you know, supreme athlete, you know, the greatest athlete um, that, the United States would ever claim, even though he was Sack and Fox, he wasn't necessarily an American. And there was other examples of, of Native kids who perhaps did go to university afterwards. But those were the exceptional. Not everybody, everybody was a Jim Thorpe. And not everybody went on to be 
a lawyer who may or may not have ever legally, legally been able to practice law because of racism. Most of it was just pure, gross assimilation. Punishing children for trying to maintain any semblance of identity. Okay, so that's what happened. But again, the goal was to reduce us as a people. Now, you could do that a couple of ways. And part of the U.S. policy for many years was to just kill us. Massacres, intentionally spread disease, starve us out, move us out of one location to an area that was not sustainable. Trail of tears, the long walk, all of these things. But residential schools became the policy of the United States. And, and it was so effective that that policy and practice would be sold off and, and marketed to Canada and Australia and New Zealand and Africa. When the nations of Europe were dividing Africa, they brought the United States to the table, not to, to give them a peace necessarily, but because the United States had, had demonstrated the most, most effective way to subdue an indigenous population. And part of it was through residential schools. So what was the outcome? Beyond the individual atrocities that, that Native kids experienced at these schools, what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. The largest period of land loss and population diminishment occurred during this period of time. At the dawn of the 20th century, our populations were the lowest, were, were, had been reduced from millions of people to something around a quarter of a million people. The, among the most effective depopulation programs the world has ever seen. Uh, by, by some estimations, 95 to 98% effective. You're talking about tens, if not hundreds of millions of people that were reduced to less than a quarter of a million people. And, and reduced not just in numbers, and this is the more significant thing in, in many ways, or I, maybe it's not the more, but, but significant. One, not just in numbers, but in stature and in standing. Because our autonomy, our distinction, our sovereignty was, was what really was under assault here. Because even if we, our population had been sustained at a higher level than that quarter of a million people, if we were only going to be Americans anyway, if, if again, if these residential schools could do what the Brackeens were arguing, what, that we were merely just a race of Americans, if they could create that situation, if they could eliminate our distinction and autonomy, which was what the goal was, then that worked for the, I mean, they, in fact, Thomas Jefferson, he, he used a phrase called the final consolidation. Sounds a little bit like the final solution that Hitler promoted. But the final, final consolidation was about taking over all of the land and subjugating all of the people. That's the consolidation that Jefferson was talking about. And that was back in 1803. That was the goal of these residential schools. So if we're going to seek redress, for the crime of genocide that these, these residential schools, these boarding schools represented, then there must be not just checks issued and not just healing for the individuals who suffered the, the trauma 
there has to be restoration. We need lands restored. We need our autonomy restored. We've got to do away with the BS that is associated with the, not only the doctrine of Christian discovery, but this plenary powers doctrine and this trust responsibility crap that, that gets thrown at us. We are not wards of the state. We never were. And just because a judge in 1823 or 1825 said, said you know, some, some offhand comment that we were like wards of the state didn't make us wards of the state. And the fact that you, as a country, and Washington in particular, as, a, as the nation's capital, has continued to treat us as an inferior people, again, complete violation of the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. I mean, and, and to be clear, this is the international standard that the United States can't, doesn't even want to meet. See, when we argue about residential schools or ICWA or the plenary powers doctrine, nobody brings up the international standard. Why? Because the United States says, no, 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 no. We voted against that in 2007. And now we, we've kind of placated the stance on the, U, uh, the, the UN DRIP, the, as it's called, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. We've softened our stance a little bit. And we've, we've suggested that we support the aspirations of the agreement. Now, aspirations mean, mean we like the goals of what this says. So we support those goals. We don't su support the implementation of these articles, but the goals are nice, provided they don't conflict with our laws. Newsflash, the reason they pass this document is because too many countries with indigenous populations are violating what would be established as the minimum standards for survival and dignity of those people. So yes, the United States, your laws, the plenary powers doctrine, the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, your trust responsibility, ICWA, IGRA, all of your laws are complete violations of this stuff. And when you suggest that the Interior Department, they're going to look into this residential school matter. Really? Really? You're going to suggest that the Department of the United States government that was responsible for some of these things is now going to provide oversight on... On, on investigating this thing, the United States should be prosecuted in an international court for the genocide that they, that they conducted through these residential schools. And you know what? It should be native prosecutors. You want truth? Then let's get truth. Let's bring out the evidence. Let's, let's say what happened. But let's not just reduce it to what happened to individuals. Yeah, those are, those are atrocities. The death of children. Look, when all is said and done, the likelihood is if the United States is ever held accountable for the deaths at these schools, we're probably talking numbers that are going to be in the tens of thousands of children who died or were killed in these schools. Tens of thousands. And I'm, when I say tens, I don't mean 20. I mean probably 50 to 70,000 children in all likelihood died in these schools. There's still, the numbers are still racking up on the Canadian side, ground penetrating radar, and not just at these residential schools, in, in other institutions, mental wards. Our, Native kids were treated as if they were mentally handicapped 
fact, that's what New York State called them. They called Native kid, kids irredeemables, that they were handicapped. In fact, they didn't, there were state-run residential schools, like Thomas Indian School, here on the Seneca Nation territory. And it was funded and regulated, not through their education department. No, these weren't schools. It was through their board of charities. And what did the board of charities do? They, they were involved in mental institutions because being Native was being regarded as a mental handicap. I mean, so even when you get into the, in, into the 19th century and the 20th century, our people were being treated, and not just our children, but our people were being treated as something less, inferior, mentally inferior, physically inferior, intellectually, spiritually, all of that stuff inferior. And in fact, barely human at all. We see it stated over and over and over again. And you don't have to go back to, to John Marshall, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Sam Alito, Antonin Scalia. They all have embraced racist dogma in how they ruled and voiced an opinion in, their, in these courts over and over and over again. So when we talk about things like reconciliation, we aren't talking reconciliation. We must talk about restoration. I think there's, there's probably restitution that is due to survivors of residential schools as individuals. And that's what Canada did. They wrote checks. But what doesn't get addressed is what did you do to the nations? What did you do to our peoples with an S? Not just what did you do to our people. How did taking our children out of these communities enable you to reduce our land holdings? How did the effects of these forced assimilation programs reduce our autonomy and our distinction? How does our sovereignty become diminished through this genocidal act or these genocidal acts that these schools represented? That's the truth that needs to come out. Yeah, we got to address the atrocities that the individuals experienced. But we also have to address how many nations were completely destroyed or certainly reduced. I mean, even here in Seneca Territory, there are lands that, that were um, essentially taken for the staff of the Thomas Indian School. And some of those lands are, are, you know, are now, they're not considered part of the, of the Cattaraugus Territory here. It's its own little village. They call it Versailles. Spelt like Versailles in France, but it's called Versailles. The story that I've told is all of that, that area of Versailles was where the staff lived. And now it's not considered part of, of the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. So these schools actually played a role in reducing our landmass. Not just did the United States strip our children away and then, then evaluate whether we needed that much land when our children were no longer there, when our population was being diminished. And, and to be clear, sterilization programs were a part of these schools. They were part of the Interior Department. The very Interior Department that you claim now is going to investigate these crimes 
these crimes need to be tried in, in, a, in a court that does not have the conflict of interest that the, that the United States has. And they have to be done in a, in a neutral um, arena. You can't have the United States investigating its own, its own history, its own crimes against humanity. You've got to have international involvement in, in that prosecution. And you have to have Native people involved in that prosecution. And then when we talk about redress, it isn't just redress to the individuals who were harmed or the, or the descendants of those individuals. Yes, it's, gonna, it's likely going to involve the returning and the repatriation of bones of the dead children from these schools. But there also has to be restoration of our autonomy. We've got to get rid of this notion that discovery of our peoples and our lands could be equated to conquest. Ripping children out of homes and placing them in these torture, torture institutions is not conquest. It's a crime against humanity. And it needs to be treated as such. So I don't care if you hire Deb Hallen as the head of the Interior Department. She is not in a position to have any kind of unbiased view of investigating this crime. Why? Because her job is to serve at the pleasure of the president, the white guy in the White House. Her job is really about preserving the national interests of the United States in its relationship with Native people. There's no trust responsibility here where our, well, our well-being is, is, the, is, the, is the highest priority. No. The United States' relationship with Native people is not based in law. It's not based on morality. It's not based on treaties. Because most of the treaties were fraud. Yeah, I said it. They were fraud. Why are they fraud? Because there was never any intention of, of honoring those treaties. And in fact, the Supreme Court said this plenary powers that, that we acknowledge Congress has, that includes the power to break any treaty they want, any time they want. So in, in spite of the fact that in the U.S. Constitution, it says that treaties are the supreme law of the land, These justices, even the ones who say they're, they're the strict constructionalists, they say, no, that's not true. Treaties are not the supreme law of the land. Congress has the supreme authority, which is, you know, and, and let's think about what Congress is just for a second. Congress is the House of Representatives and the Senate. The Senate is constructed of two members from every state of the union. Which means states like California and New York, and I'm not saying that they represent, you know, some sort of justice for, for Native people, but those states with large populations have no more representation than Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, Montana, Vermont, New Hampshire. Yeah. So these states that have either diminished population or diminished landmass 
they have as much power, Kentucky, they have as much power as states that, that really involve the larger percentages of population. So it is a skewed system. And it's skewed towards rural America, Republican America, conservative America. So to suggest that Congress has this power, this ultimate power, with no checks and balance, because the Supreme Court says, no, there, there's no need for checks and balance over Congress's plenary power. They just have it. The court can't take it away. That's how ICWA survived its challenge. The court can't take the plenary powers away from Congress. The president can't. And there's no document that you can hold up and say, well, this is where the limits are to congressional power. No, there is no con constitutional framework to regulate the power of Congress as it relates to Native people. There other places, yes, it does. There are other places where it is clear where the limits of congressional authority are. Not when it comes to Native people. That, that is the atrocity. That is where this notion of rule of law, there's no rule of law that exists when it comes to Native people. There, there's no such thing as, my, my good friend Peter Griego says, there's no such thing as federal Indian law. There's federal anti-Indian law. That's all there is. There's laws controlling and dominating Native people. That's what exists in the federal government. And those laws have no constitutional foundation. They, they are just invented. They, they get created through a combination of church dogma from the 15th century to legal dicta by judges who can just say stuff and it becomes law. Like this notion that we are wards of the state. I've heard congressmen even recently say it. That we are still being regarded by white men as wards of the state. Not the individual states. Of course, that's the other problem, right? Because most of the conservative justices want to affirm and assert states' rights over federal rights. They want to make sure that the federal government doesn't have, have authority. The only place they, that they seem to give in is on this plenary power doctrine of over Native people. And why? Why would that be? Well, because they don't view us as much of a threat. I mean, if Congress has ultimate authority over this smallest piece of the U.S. population, and that's what we're being regarded as, a part of the U.S. population, in spite of the fact that there's no legal premise for that either. Does it really matter? I mean, are we that significant? We're less than one-tenth of one percent, especially if you only count the population of Native people who live on Native land. It's a small population. This is why when we talk about residential schools, when we talk about the genocide, not cultural genocide, not paper genocide, not political genocide, but genocide. We have to look at restoring what that genocide accomplished. And look, did it totally eradicate Native people? No. Some, but not total, not all. But genocide doesn't require 
to be deemed genocide doesn't mean it has to be successful or completely successful. It doesn't mean you have to totally eliminate a people. It says all or part. All or part. And a significant part of our people were eliminated during the residential school period, that, that era. Our populations were diminished, our land holdings were diminished, and the thing that we fight every single day in all of these court proceedings is our own authority was diminished. Our own autonomy, our sovereignty was diminished. And you know what? The success of residential schools is that many of our own people will argue that the federal government has our back, that they have a trust responsibility to us. No, they don't. They are not our trustees. They do not have ultimate authority. Congress does not have the authority to regulate the meets and bounds of our autonomy. And I'll tell you, it's also wrong to have these national policies where all Native people are lumped together. Now, I'm not trying to throw any Native people under a bus here. But as I go through reading, not just Peter DeRico's book, the uh, Federal Anti-Indian Law book, but as I, as I read these rulings and this notion of plenary powers, or how the doctrine of discovery, Ruth Bader Ginsburg citing the doctrine of discovery, specifically with an Oneida case, it ignores the fact that before Justice, Chief Justice John Marshall codified the doctrine of discovery into U.S. law, a mere, a few years before, 30 years before that, the United States tried to enter into a treaty with the Haudenosaunee, with the Six Nations. And in that treaty, they say three times that the United States recognizes that our land is ours, that the lands described in the treaty are ours, and that the United States will never claim the same, nor will they disturb us on those lands. Well, that completely contradicts the notion of the doctrine of discovery that all U.S. that U.S. sovereignty is based on. I mean, the United States was acknowledging that the territories of the Six Nations were not part of the United States and never would be. Thirty years later, you have this Chief Justice saying that you no, know, Native people don't own land. They never own land. They they merely own what we might call Indian title, which is the right of occupancy, not title to the land. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg ignored the, the, the Canandaigua Treaty. She ignored the, the written word written by the representatives of George Washington as the first president of the United States that said, the land is yours and we'll never claim the same. And it wasn't just said this one time. During the Removal Act period, when the Senecas were being, were being coerced into leaving their homelands and going out to Kansas, they said, well, what would be the status of that land? And the United States responded and said, that land would be yours. It would be held in the same manner as the land you currently hold. And the United States will never claim it. It will never become a part of a state. 
That's, that's the promise that the, the Senecas were made when they were being coerced into leaving their ancestral homelands. So they were acknowledging, even in the 1830s, not just in 1794, but in the 1830s, they were still acknowledging that, yes, the land that you are occupying now is yours. And if we can pay you to take other lands, that land will be yours until you decide to sell it, which is kind of what the candidate says. The land will always be yours until you decide to sell it and the United States has the right to buy. So they, they tried to throw in their, their preemptive rights as the only um, entity that could acquire native lands, Haudenosaunee lands. The United States was the only entity. But they could not coerce us or force us to sell according to the treaty. And by the way, <laughs> every year the United States requisitions $4,500 worth of cloth and sends it to the Six Nations. Why? Because that's what the Canandaigua Treaty said. It said in 1794 dollars, this was, that the United States was to make annual payments either in cloth or, or farm animals or equipment to the Six Nations. <laughs> There's been no cost of living increase. There's been no increase in that $4,500 in over 200 years. But every year, some person sitting at the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the Interior Department, it's their job to requisition and then distribute cloth as the fulfillment of the Canandaigua Treaty. So to suggest the Canandaigua Treaty doesn't exist, I argue that there's, there's problems with that treaty about its ratification and all that stuff. But the United States is still sending cloth every year. So the United States is, is acknowledging the language of that treaty that says the land is ours and the United States will never claim the same. That's, that, that's one of the issues that I think we need to highlight is that the relationship of six, 700 distinct native nations with the United States, it cannot be covered under one blanket U.S. policy. We've had individual treaties that have not been abrogated by Congress. They've been broken, but even in what they consider the legal way to break a treaty, which is through congressional abrogation, it hasn't been done. In fact, the United States is still, still sending $4,500 worth of cloth to the Six Nations every year. So we can't treat all Native people the same. We have to look at what the relationship was. How was the land held? Where is the land held? Are we on the original land that, where, we, where we started? Because some of us are. Others haven't been. Others have been displaced. Now, I don't mean that diminishes them, but there has to be an acknowledgement of that somehow. So that's why I say, no, we don't need truth and reconciliation. We need truth and restoration. Don't even talk to me about healing and reconciliation if there is not restoration. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh.